Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent. Now, before we talk about uh, about this space to repent, because that's what we're talking about, space or time to repent. That is how God works. It's called his long-suffering. It is his patience, endurance, uh, and he says, my spirit will not always strive with men, but for now our God is long-suffering and he has not lowered the boom as far as final judgment, especially on this world. But what is this Jezebel? Jezebel, as you know, was the wife of King Ahab of Israel many years ago. Uh, we, We read about her in the Old Testament. She died a horrible death. Her and her husband were godless. Uh, You know, he was a wicked king of Israel, and she was, uh, you know, very dominant, very domineering. And so why is Jesus talking about Jezebel? And I want to read a few quotes, some synopsises. One writer says this, just the most concise thing. One writer said, There's no need to understand Jezebel as indicating a distinct person. We are in the region of figures and metaphors. That's in Revelation. Perhaps all that is indicated is that the angel of the church at Thyatira is suffering from the tolerated presence of a baneful influence, as did Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. Jezebel may be a person, or she may be a form of false doctrine personified. Another writer puts this. From these words, it has been thought that there was some personal influence at work for evil in Thyatira. The sin alleged against her is the same for which the Nicolaitans are condemned. That's mentioned twice. Those people are mentioned twice in Revelation dealing with other churches. And um, the same sin against her is that that sin they, they are condemned for, which is fornication and eating of things offered to idols. And um, if the above view be right, the leader of the exorcist is a woman regarded by her followers as a prophetess but viewed by the Lord of the churches as a very Jezebel, teaching and seducing the servants of God. And for letting her alone, this was what the church is being condemned for, or the angel, the pastor of the church, for letting her alone, for being timid, and paying too much deference to her spiritual pretensions, the chief minister is rebuked. And then he says this, a large number of respectable interpreters regard Jezebel as a name applied to a faction, not as belonging to an individual. It seems best to view the name as symbolic, always remembering that the Jezebel spirit of pride, self-constituted authority, vaunted claims of superior holiness or higher knowledge, followed by open immorality, has again and again run riot in the churches of God. And that was a a pastor in the 1800s. And, And the same is true today. So Jezebel, we're not talking about Ahab's wife from long ago, but she has become a figure of, you know, like today we talk about, you know, be a Berean. Well, the city of Berea, none of us are going to ever live in the city of Berea. We're using that figuratively, right? We used it in our Bible study this morning about being a Berean, which means it's Acts 17, 11, you search the scriptures and you don't just go, you're not just gullible to any Bible teacher that comes along. You say, prove it. You know, show me, does the Bible say that? And so, in this case, someone that is a Jezebel has the spirit of Jezebel, and clearly, uh, there were many good things in the church in Thyatira, but 
there was a tolerance of evil. Specifically, some kind of a false teacher or false teaching that should have been nipped in the bud, but it was allowed to infest. And how interesting it is that the Lord is condemning the church because of toleration. Now today, toleration, everybody's, you know, that's the greatest virtue that anyone could have. But you know, there are some things that we must not be tolerant of. Because a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And, and Jeremiah's very message here in, in Jeremiah chapter 6, uh, you know, all the other prophets were tolerant. Just like that, the angel of the church of Thyatira, the messenger of the church of Thyatira, tolerated Jezebel. And so all these false prophets of Jeremiah's time are, instead of rebuking and exposing the disease that the people of Israel had, they healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. In other words, they had a, a, here's the idea, is they had a, a, a gross festering wound and they put band-aids on it. You know, and, and when they should have exposed it and said, this is serious, this, is, this needs to be dealt with. And so, now, what, with that in mind, this idea mentioned in Revelation 2 of whoever or whatever Jezebel represented is God says, I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. So, look at the word space. And the idea is it's a gap. That's why I'm calling this the gap theory uh, or God's wonderful gap theory because space or a gap is this. A gap is defined as space between two things. And in this case, the two things are God's people committing crimes, moral crimes against God and justice being executed. That's the space. So God's people perform wickedness and God does not immediately judge. Now, by the way, again, and I quote, I'm going to be quoting this verse a lot through this whole book. Remember what Ecclesiastes chapter... Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 11 because sentence, you know, the criminal being sentenced, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the children of men is fully set in them to do evil. In other words, because you can get away with evil for a little bit, that convinces some people that there are no repercussions, and so they do it full bore. But it's not saying, that's where Galatians 6 and verse 7 comes in, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. So how could you mock God? We mock God like having the attitude of Ecclesiastes 8.11. Sentence against it, we do something wrong and we're not zapped right away or we, we think we got away with it. And we say, you know what? There's no consequences. I can continue to do my sin and enjoy it and no bad is going to come. That's the idea. And that's mocking God. Because God is saying, you will reap what you sow. Now you're reaping another season, just the whole agricultural principle of sowing and reaping. You reap in another season than when you sow. But you still reap what you sow. And that's Paul's point in Galatians. So, 
as we talk about this gap from when an injustice takes place to when God brings justice or punishment, there is a space. Jezebel, or whoever that was in the church of Thyatira, was permitted to teach false teaching and, and, and infect God's people. And now the pastor was tolerant, whoever the angel was. They, they suffered. They allowed this woman Jezebel to teach. But God was being provoked. And God was giving space to repent. And they didn't repent. And so they were, they were going to be judged. And so now we fast forward here. To, to Jeremiah chapter 6. We've already looked at a little bit, but um, look at verse 9. We saw God's thoroughness. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall thoroughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine. And then he talks to Jeremiah and he says, turn back thine hand as a grape gatherer into the baskets. This is not a new image. This is not a new picture. In fact, in chapter 5, God gave to Jeremiah the, the image of a vineyard. And he said in verse, um, first he said this, in fact, look real quickly at Jeremiah 5.1. Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now and know, and seek in the broad places thereof, if you can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it. So beginning in chapter 5, God is telling Jeremiah, do an investigation. We want to find, because God's already been doing it, by the way. Remember the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. That's, God is constantly on a seek mission. But he's telling Israel, because he's getting ready to judge them, he's telling Jeremiah, go and look for just one person that does righteousness. And then in verse 10 of chapter 5, he uses a picture of a vineyard. Go ye up her walls. The, 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 the Hebrew word, has to do with rows of vines. And destroy, but make not a full end. Take away her battlements. By the way, this was the instruction to the enemy, God's servant, Babylon, who would come in and be the judgment hand of God. But he's saying, you go ahead in and, and destroy the vines. But then he put boundaries around it. That's explained in chapter 5. But what we see, and in fact, here's what I want to focus on in the next few minutes as we go through this. As we look at God's wonderful gap, which is His long-suffering, uh, sometimes God will execute pretty swift judgment. Ananias and Sapphira, as always, what comes to mind in Acts chapter 5. You know, they had this little plot, and then no sooner, than, I mean, very soon it seems, that after they made their deception... Uh, one by one, they just dropped dead and they were judged by God to, to be made an example. But most of the time, God is uh, patient, giving us space to repent, which can be a big blessing depending on what, what part of that space you are at. You know, when you're in that space, when you're doing something that displeases God and you know you're displeasing God, you're, you're, you're living on borrowed time as far as the punishment. And, and you have to sense that. I think that's where America is right now. We are in that place where God is being provoked. Uh, we are clenching our fist at God. He's giving us space to repent. That's a very precarious place to be. Especially 
if you're like Israel at this time and you don't see it. In fact, when Jeremiah tried to tell them, trouble's ahead, uh, they even said, um, and, and I've shared this in verses previously, they said, the Lord's not going to do that. That's my paraphrase. But very clearly, they articulated, I think in chapter 5 and even chapter 4, this, Jeremiah, what you're saying, that's not our God. He's not going to judge us. Now, I want you to remember that whatever it is, God's mercy is, He is long-suffering. But here's where you and I want to be. When we want to be on the other side of having repented. And how many things can you think back in your life when you were struggling with something and, and you were not being obedient to God and He was patient with you? And you can say, and you can say that was in my past. Praise God. Only by His mercy. I'm no better than anyone else. Only by His mercy. And that's where we're to be. That's where God wanted Israel to be. But they were right here in the middle of that gap. And uh, so now, when we talk about God's long-suffering, we see three things. Here's what we're going to see tonight. Really quickly, we're going to see three things. First, we see God's due process. The investigatory search in legal terms, when we think of our criminal court system. Then we're going to look at the leadership, and that's what a lot of these verses tonight talk about. They're challenging on the leadership. We're going to see proper leadership. That's the leadership that is getting the message from God. Of course, this is Jeremiah. He's the only one that would fit this bill during this time. There were a lot of prophets. There were a lot of priests that should have known better, but only Jeremiah, as far as uh, there were a few other random prophets at different times. But Jeremiah was the one that was giving the warning. He was the one that had the burden. He was the one that understood how delicate of a situation Israel was in, hanging on the precipice. And then thirdly, the thing that is really focused on in this text is the leadership failure. That's who God condemns. So, First, we see the investigative process. And this is, again, simply verse 9, where God is telling Jeremiah, go back now, and uh, again, look at verse 9, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall, glean, they shall thoroughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine. Now he's telling Israel, or Je- Jeremiah, turn back thine hand as a grape gatherer into the baskets. So he's saying, Jeremiah, I know you already went through the pruning process. I, and I know you've already looked for a man. I want you to just check one more time. This is, this is their last chance, chance. Now, it's interesting that God even has an investigative process. It's amazing because God doesn't need an investigative process. He knows everything. And yet, there is still, very clearly, there is... An investigative process. I used uh, three weeks ago, I used the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that? In Genesis chapter 18, there was this whole process that took time. Remember what we're talking about? Time to repent, that gap. There was this whole investigative process where the Lord came down with three angels. There was a, you know, Christophany, a theophany, and three angels appearing as men. So four men appeared to Abraham. And in fact, I'll just read it to you. In Genesis 18, 20, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, 
I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it. That's investigation. God is going to, it's like, doesn't that sound like God saying, I'm going to go check it out. (laughs) That's what he's saying. Why does God need to check it out? He already knows exactly what's happening. But again, there is this investigative process. And um, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. So what is this investigative process? You know, there is an investigative process. Whenever we're talking about criminal activity, our system and many proper systems have what is called uh, evidentiary search. And they, everybody has that. It's part, in fact, it's called part of the 14th Amendment, the uh, due, due process clause, which is to make sure that everybody, that there isn't a rush to judgment, that things are thoroughly investigated and brought out and these are all things that are before justice can be established truth must be established truth must be presented before justice can take place god does that remember second corinthians god tells us to do that second corinthians judge nothing before the time until the lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness, will make manifest the counsels or the motives of the heart, and then shall every man have praise of God. Now that's what's going to happen on Judgment Day for the believer and for the world. But it's this investigative process that he does before he judges anyone. And now we see in in Jeremiah 6, he's doing that with Israel. This is not for God's benefit or for his knowledge. Again, he already knows. He hears the cry of it. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. He knows exactly every wicked thought. And but but still, he is giving us, he's giving them, he was giving Sodom and Gomorrah, he is giving Israel, he gives us space to repent. And what is space? It's a gap. Between two things, the crime or the moral failure and the punishment, the chastening, the correction. And there is that time. And what is that time for? To repent. Isn't that, God is so good. Why is there even a Jeremiah? We already know he's the weeping prophet and he gets, you know, according to most commentators, zero converts according for his messages. It's like, why even have a Jeremiah? Or why couldn't we, if we're studying the life of Jeremiah, why couldn't Jeremiah be one of the minor prophets? You know, like, oh, here's the book of Jeremiah. It's, a, it's one chapter, you know, because Jeremiah couldn't have tolerated, you know, he preached for a real short time and nobody listened to him, so God judged it. That might have been better for Jeremiah, you know. But Jeremiah is a long book because he has a long message because he was there for a long time preaching to the Jews, to Israel, or to Judah specifically, remember, and giving them time to repent. His whole ministry represented God's patience. Now, they didn't think so. They were, now, if you, had asked, if you had done a general survey to the, the Jews during Judah, during Jeremiah's message time, during his reign, 
or during his ministry. You could have said, here's the, here's the imagine you're, you and I are everyday Jews. We get up every morning and we go out there and we know all the prophets that are out there and we know Jeremiah. Jeremiah is definitely different than all the other prophets. The other prophets are very popular. They say nice things about us. They comfort us. They heal our hurt because we're going through time, hard time. It's only Jeremiah that's the caustic, you know, rebel. And so you say, you know, which prophets do you like? We wouldn't be picking Jeremiah. I don't like Jeremiah because he's condemning us. I like those other guys. They're really nice. God didn't like them. And by the way, they were not the friend of the Jew because they were not giving them truth. I'm so grateful that our God is, is long-suffering. I'm so glad that God doesn't, you know, that every sin is not dealt with in an Ananias and Sapphira fashion. You sin, you die, lightning strikes from heaven. Remember uh, Peter or James and John, the sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, that when, uh, you know, they were so provoked. And by the way, we're going to see Jeremiah is provoked here. We're going to see in the next point that he is provoked and he is, he's filled with righteous indignation. But remember when James and John, those people rejected Jesus and they said, Lord, bid us that we call down fire from heaven and consume them. They were righteously angry, weren't they? And they thought, these people, they deserve to be punished. Were, were they right? Yes. But Jesus, it wasn't his time. Because he gives people space to repent. I remember reading a story. President Calvin, Calvin Coolidge, he was the 30th president of the United States. In fact, he, he stopped his presidency ended two years before he died in 1933. Uh, he died the year my dad was born. And Calvin Coolidge, uh, this, this story of him uh, was not known until after he died, and then it came out later that um, he woke up one morning in a hotel room. He was visiting somewhere, and he woke up to a man going through his personal belonging, his pockets and stuff, took his wallet, and he just woke up and caught the guy. And he, um, he, he quietly spoke up, and he asked the burglar not to take his watch chain because it was engraved and it was a very precious gift. And he began to talk calmly to this guy that was robbing him, that did not realize he was robbing the President of the United States. And, um, and Calvin Coolidge was able to learn about him, that this man was in college, and he could not afford uh, the hotel bill. He could not afford a ticket back to campus. And, and that's why he was going, he, was just, he just needed $32. And Calvin Coolidge, after he talked him into giving his wallet back, took $32 out of his wallet and gave it to the man. And he said, listen, he said, this is a loan. You need to pay it back. And he said, now you, you go out the same way you came or you're going to be nabbed by the Secret Service in no time. And he let that man go. And as the story is told, the very last statement is, yes, the loan was paid back. Of course it was. Of course it was. Because... You know, you think about it. He's the president of the United States. He had secret service all around. Don't ask me how this guy got in. But one word from the president, and that man's life is ruined and altered forever, is it not? But Calvin Coolidge wasn't so much looking for justice. He, he just found out a little bit about this guy. He took knowledge. He, he cared. 
and He showed mercy. And you know what the Bible says? The goodness of God leadeth us to repentance. You know that space to repent? It's, it's the goodness of God. It was there for this Jezebel of Thyatira. It was there for Judah during this time. Space to repent. Because our good God wants us to repent and get right with Him. How wonderful is that? Now look at verse 10. Verse 10, Jeremiah's... Dis, dis, and now it's when we're going to talk about leadership for the rest of our time here. First, we're going to talk about proper leadership. This is Jeremiah's response. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised. And this is now Jeremiah talking to God. Uh, and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. And by the way, he was preaching the word. And his word, God's word, was contemptible to the people and he's like Where, what can i do and he said therefore i am full of the fury of the lord i am weary with holding in i will pour it out upon the children abroad and upon the assembly of young men together for even the husband with the wife shall be taken the aged with him that is full of days and their house shall be turned into others with their fields and wives together for i will stretch out my hand upon the inhabitants of the land saith the Lord. So Jeremiah now, again in verse, um, verse 11, he's saying, I am full of the fury of the Lord. Now he's been getting the message. He's been preaching to people, that like, like speaking to a brick wall, and he's now feeling that righteous indignation, and he is speaking truth that could lead him to react in the flesh. I think of Moses. Remember Moses? Remember two times God first said to, to Moses, I want you to strike the rock. I'm going to give you good water to people. The second time I remember he said, speak to the rock. And the first time God did provide the water. In fact, the second time God provided the water. But Moses was so filled with righteous anger that he didn't do what the Lord said and he smote the rock in anger. Water came out, the people got fed, the water got their thirst quenched. But what happened to Moses because of that? He was hindered from going into the promised land because the way what God worded is, worded it is, you sanctified me not in the eyes of the people. Now, I believe that that same passion that Moses had, where he's provoked by the disobedience and the sin of God's people, I believe Jeremiah had it too, but Jeremiah simply expressed it. Jeremiah doesn't strike any rock, doesn't punch any prophets or strangle any priests. You know, he just, he just expresses that. He has that righteous indignation, and it was, I believe it was enough to motivate him to make his message as passionate and as hot as it needed to be. See the other prophets? If any of them heard from God, God's message was judgment. And what did they do? We learned here, they healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They had failed the leadership. They failed God, but they failed the Jews incredibly. Because that's not what the Jews needed to hear. The Jews needed to hear, judgment is coming. I love this story, and, and if you'll indulge me to just share it for a few minutes. 
because I've shared this at least one other time. Many of you know that my favorite president is Ronald Reagan. And there was a time, and I remember this, I was a young, was a young teenager at a time when I couldn't care less about politics. So I remember when this event happened, but had no idea of the significance of it. But when Ronald Reagan was president, do you remember hearing about the air traffic controller strike? Some of you, PACO. Uh, well, apparently, in this, and um, uh, Peggy Noonan writes this in the book about Ronald Reagan called When Character is King. And she talked about that, that air, there was an air traffic control. Uh, they went on strike because they, you know, they weren't getting paid. And here's what she says in her book, and I want to read part of it. What has not been generally known until now is that a strike by American air traffic controllers carried real national security implications. Now, when I heard it going on as news, I just thought, okay, this is a domestic incident, and it's a political thing, and so I was kind of checked out, just involved in my young teenage life. But Ronald Reagan had this fall on his lap. And here's what she said. Patco, in effect, controlled the skies. And American AWAC bombers that might on a moment's notice be ordered to head for Moscow were also, were also in those skies every day. When the two-day strike deadline passed, so I remember, I remember hearing that he set a deadline. 30% of the PATCO members showed up for work. 70% stayed out. Ronald Reagan threatened to fire every one of them. 70%. And you know what happened? He did it. Every one of them lost his job. And she says this, We fired 11,400 traffic controllers. That was what uh, Drew Lewis was a Reagan interlude or whatever to talk to her and he told her that, that we fired 11,400 traffic controllers. That's a lot of families that were affected. Fourth and most importantly, she says later on, the Soviet Union was watching. That was a, a biggest threat back then. They saw how the American president dealt with a national security issue. They saw that rhetorical toughness could be matched by tough action. They absorbed this. And thought about it. And then she said, The PATCO decision was the most important foreign policy decision Ronald Reagan ever made. Because he wasn't just cheap talk. When Ronald Reagan said something, the outsiders knew from this, Whoa. He means it. Folks, who you vote into office is so important. It is so important. And now, as we close, we see that God directs his attention to his biggest disappointment. The prophets and the priests, who should have been the, should have been the, um, you know, the, 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 the middle guy, the, um, the point man. They should have been the ones that were warning the people. Look at verse 10 and following as we close. Jeremiah 6, 10 and following. To whom... Shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, there, we, we already looked at that. Look at verse, uh, uh, that, I'm, I'm in the wrong point. Okay, look at verse 13. For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, 
Everyone dealeth falsely. There are a bunch of liars, he's saying. In fact, back, remember back in chapter 5, verse 30, uh, Jeremiah said, a wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. And by wonderful, he doesn't mean this is great. He's saying it is, this is serious. This, this needs to grab our attention. This is, this, should, this is a wonder that this is happening. A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means. That's the covetousness, the lying. And my people love to have it so. And what will you do in the end thereof? Now look at verse 14. I've quoted this a couple times already. They have, this is the prophets and priests, the point men, the one that should have been standing there like Jeremiah, sounding the banner call, and, you know, look out, repent, God's judgment is coming. Maybe if more of those false prophets had changed their message, the people might have listened. Look at verse 14. These false prophets, they have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, superficially, saying, peace, peace. You say, that's a nice message. They're such loving prophets. They're thinking of our best. They care about us. They're saying nice things. We can listen to them and not feel bad about ourselves and have a low self-esteem. But what does God say? They were saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. I submit to you. And just the old illustration. If you were approaching a bridge, walking let's say, and you saw all of a sudden that the bridge was out, but you couldn't see it from the, the, the way the road approached it. And it was a sudden drop. And the, the bridge actually was destroyed. But people couldn't see it. And you're right there. And you see people approaching the bridge. And you know they don't know the danger. What are you going to do when you stand there? Are you going to start waving frantically to save their life? Yes, you should. But what if you don't want to come across as a radical? What if you don't want them to think that you're mad? Or think that, that you're angry? And so you just you don't say anything. Would, would that be kind in any way? No. You see that danger is approaching. There's no doubt. That was Jeremiah's predicament. He was the one standing at the precipice of the bridge. And the people of Judah were coming headlong in. And he was the only one warning them. While all the other prophets are around saying, there's no danger. Just go ahead. It's a beautiful bridge. The view is awesome. Just go right ahead. And they were the ones that were the real bad guys. Uh, my friend Ray Paget posted this on, on Facebook. I love this quote. It is a quote from A.W. Tozer, the quotable Tozer. And he said, We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relation agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, the world of sports, and modern education. We are not diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. Folks, when you realize, now let's, let's take Jeremiah's time and put, put it into our, our time. Now, Jeremiah's message was a temporal message because it was simply talking about the, the coming Babylonian captivity that they were going to be punished in this life by going into exile for many, many decades, 
And it was a temporal on this earth punishment to a nation. But you and I have, our message is so much, our message is eternal. We are not talking about temporal, you know, chastisement from the Lord, folks. We're talking about the judgment to come. There is a judgment to come. And people do not realize that they have sinned against a holy God. And that God's not just going to wink at everyone. And God doesn't just give the whole world a big hug. The whole world doesn't need a big hug. The whole world needs salvation. And that's why God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross. But I remind you that the good news, the gospel, first is bad news. And in order to understand the good news that Jesus came and died to save us from judgment, until we learn that we deserve judgment, the good news is no news until you get the bad news. I close with this. Because I remind you folks, what we're here for as a church is gospel evangelism, gospel advancement. Uh, a friend is a missionary that, uh, that I know is a missionary to Japan. He's been in Japan for as long as I've been in ministry. We went to Bible college together. And, uh, and he wrote this in a recent prayer letter, and I love this statement. He said, uh, and this is a quote from... Um, uh, another writer in a book called Transforming Mission. But listen to what he said. He said, missions isn't something the church does. Rather, it is what the church is. And then he quotes from this, this book. He says, the New Testament does not recognize a missionless church. Mission is before church. Church exists for the sake of mission. Church did not give us the word the living word gave us a mission and set us out to bring him great glory. And now listen to this quote. He said, The engine and heart of the church is nothing less than gospel advancement. Where churches exist for their own sake and not the mission's sake, they become fossilized institutions which have lost their movement ethos. Whatever ethos is. But I love that quote. You know, again, the engine in the heart of the church is nothing less than gospel advancement. Where churches exist for their own sake and not for the mission's sake, they become fossilized institutions. And we've lost our vision. I'll, I'll summarize it. That's what that ethos means. That we've lost our vision. Jeremiah did not lose his vision. All the other prophets did. Today, folks, being a church... It's not about entertainment. It's not about how good our music is or all the programs that we have or, you know, whatever it is. Every church exists for gospel advancement. Now, there is, obviously, there's a big place for discipleship, mentorship, uh, very important. But let's not forget, gospel advancement. That's what we want to be doing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jeremiah. Thank you for this man's passion Thank you for his longevity. Thank you for the fact that this man represents your long-suffering and your, uh, your patience with us, that you give people space to repent. And Father, help us not to abuse that. Help us to be so conscious of that and realize that repentance is not without our grasp. It's, it's within our grasp. It's enabled by your Spirit. It is enabled by your grace. And, and Father, you are the one that uh, gives us the ability to do that. So 
Uh, Lord, help us to be on the other end, on the outside of the gap, uh, praising you for your long-suffering during that time uh, that, that you were working on us. Thank you for those times in our past when you were long-suffering with us. And Father, whatever, whatever your people are dealing with right now, uh, may they realize that, uh, that your silence uh, or that your seemingly inaction against their sin is not because you don't care, not because you're not provoked uh, and pleased with America. Lord, press upon us that there is a living God in heaven who, who is very aware of right and wrong and that we are violating, we're committing moral crimes against the one that created us, the one that gave us our very country and that, Father, this will not last indefinitely. And so we ask for your mercy and we ask for the grace to repent. And we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.